Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and Tom Hopkinson of the Sunday Mirror. The Champions League is back. It's not perfect, but it's the only game in town. It highlights the rise of the super clubs, obscenely wealthy, state-sponsored. I'm talking, of course, about Manchester City and PSG. They can be wonderful to watch, but John, are they a good thing for football? I have to say yes. <laughs> I'm going to be controversial. I think people probably expect me to say no. But the one thing is where it slightly annoys me is I think we've got this bizarre halfway house at the moment where we're kind of thinking, are there financial fair play rules? What do they mean? Are they enforced? And I think it just open it all up, basically throw it open to absolutely everybody. So you can't, back in the old days of, say, 13, 14 years ago, the early days of Abramovich, for example, mm. when all, all bets were off and you could go and sign whoever you wanted for however much you wanted, put them on the contract for however much you wanted. Because I just feel that, that at the moment people are finding ways around it. And people might say, well, that will just make Man City and PSG stronger. Well, arguably, yes. But then did it stop them really doing any business in the summer? I'm not sure that it did, but it will certainly be testing the rules, I think, or sort of pushing the boundaries, particularly where PSG are concerned, I think, mm -hmm. over the, sort of the terms and conditions of Mbappe. What I think and take out of them both is that they are playing football at such a great level. And I just think Man City have raised the bar in the Premier League. PSG, I mean, I know that they are turning sort of, you know, potentially the, the French league into a farce, a one-horse race, but they are great to watch and it is raising that level. The Premier League, no one will ever have it their own way. Man City might be completely dominant for one season, but others will bite back, I'm convinced of that. But City are brilliant to watch. Mm, yeah, they're, what, eight points ahead, PSG six points ahead. That tells its own story, doesn't it, Tom? Yeah, it does. But, I mean, last year we saw a case with Manchester City where they, despite spending lots of money, you know, they, they weren't head and shoulders above the rest. You know, it's part of football's evolution. And I agree with Crossy, you know, I, 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 think it's, I think it's good for the game as long as it doesn't go too far, it doesn't run away with itself too far. But, you know, look at years ago when we, we'd been used to Manchester United and Liverpool dominating. And that was purely because they were the, the biggest clubs, the richest clubs. But then Chelsea come along. Sorry, well, Arsenal came along first, didn't they? But then Chelsea come along and there's the famous quote from David Dean about the, the notes being fired from the, on, from the tanks, the Russian tanks, onto the lawns. It's all part of the evolution. I think it's great that we've now got a big six. That, that Manchester City are involved in that. Um, and, and I hope it continues. And, and you know, we talk about the, the investment from um, the, the, state, uh, the states into these clubs. And I, I think the one thing about the French League is it'll make other people want to invest because they'll look at other clubs and think, well, PSG are putting so much focus on the French League. When was the last time, you know, before four or five years ago, we ever really talked about the, the French League on 
shows like this. You know, it didn't really get a mention. It's always been behind the Premier League, behind Bundesliga, behind La Liga, and yet now we're talking about it. And I think that will open the door to investment in teams like Marseille, you know, other big, big clubs. And, and I think it can only be positive for the game. Mm. You know, PSG are playing Celtic on Wednesday in the Champions League. I've always got the impression that they are a rich, a rich man's toy. Mm. And it is a distinctly Parisian club, isn't it? You know, it's a bit of a night out at the opera mm. sort of job, isn't it? When you look at PSG, when will we take them seriously? Do they have to win the Champions League for us to say, yep, global superpower? Yes, absolutely. I think that is the barometer for them. PSG is a strange experience, as you say, but basically you often kind of... You get the metro there, you get off, and you walk round the corner, this sort of almost this, you know, uh, very sort of intense sort of kind of shops and a few houses, a few bars, and all of a sudden you walk round this sort of kind of almost concrete jungle, and there before you is this incredible stadium that has sort of kind of been reinvented, built up, and and you just think, wow, what, 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 what an incredible thing, really. It's in one of the great cities of the world, it has become obviously synonymous with record-breaking transfers, glamour and, and uh, glory and everything that goes with that. And that is something to be admired. And, you know, I, I love going and watch English teams play there in the, in the Champions League. It's a great test. It's a brilliant atmosphere. They've got some wonderful players. To really move on to the next level from those kind of second tier of clubs, and they're certainly trying, aren't they, by, by the signings, they need to make a huge statement in Europe, and that's to win the Champions League. But I have to say, I just don't think they're still quite there yet. I think they are. I do think you, they are, yeah. Do you I think mean, they're going to win the Champions League this season? I think they've got as much of a chance as anyone. And, and uh, you know, I mean, look at them a couple of years ago, in the last couple of years, that they've, they've really kicked on to that level. And I, I think any club who gets drawn against PSG at whatever stage of the competition will certainly be going there fearing that they, they could be on the, uh, the wrong end of a hiding. And it's going to be a tough game. I mean, look at some of the talent they've got. You know, look, Cavani, if, if, if only he could score, one of, the best, <laughs> yeah. one of the best players in the world for getting into position, but super lovely to watch. You know, for any young striker, you'd say to them, just watch his movement. Don't watch his finishing, but watch his, watch his movement because he's, he's brilliant like that. And then you look at the likes of Marquinhos, you know, the Thiago's, both of them, just great players, Rabiot as well. You know, really exciting team, and and I think I think man for man they've got as exciting a squad as anyone. So I, I, only one team is going to win the the Champions League every season, and and I think you know as long as you're in and around the semi-finals every year, which I can see PSG being for for many years to come, I, I think we have to take them very seriously. Yeah, is it a realistic target for City as well? Yeah, I, I think that City now are without doubt the best best team in the Premier League and, and probably the, the best hope, I think, for, for trying to make a statement from, from the Premier League in the Champions League. The one thing that still continues to worry me is, is their, is their defence. I still think they will concede goals. You know, losing Stones now for six weeks is clearly a blow. But I think further down for when he's back, I think that he, he sort of represents, you know, a much improved defence. I think it's such a shame they'll be, obviously, for the vast majority of the season without Mendy, for example. But Walker, there's few better right-backs in Europe at the moment than, than him, in my view. Edison has obviously been a revelation. So, don't get me wrong, they are clearly massively improving on all angles. But I still feel that the, the bridge for English clubs to overcome is not so much the kind of 
the talent and the personalities. I mean, is there are there many better players in in Europe at the moment than De Bruyne, for example? Mm. But it's that intensity and the demands of the Premier League because we think of it all, and rightly so, I think, as the, as the best and most entertaining in the competitive league in the world. But that means then that you cannot rest and rotate players for for a moment, especially if you're trying to sort of finish the season unbeaten and win it in real style, mm. like City are, then I think the demands on two fronts are massive for City. And I think that's their, their biggest obstacle rather than a lack of experience or talent. Yeah, it looks like Guardiola's going to rotate against final during the week. Um, let's concentrate on Pep, if we could. Do you think he'll stay on after 2019? And let's look at his impact, not just in the players coming in, but the way that, you know, he's basically, he's turned that squad from an old ageing squad, got rid of 12 players, and now I think it's the fifth youngest in the Premier League, about 20, just over 26 mm. years as an average age. Give me an idea, Tom, of what you think his greatest achievement has been so far and how much more can he achieve? At Manchester City? Yeah. I put everything he's done at Manchester City into context and, and it's into the context of what we've been talking about, that he has the money and the backing to go out and buy the best young fullbacks in the world yeah. uh, or in Europe. So why has he been linked with Patrick Van Arnholt? <laughs> well, you, 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 you'll have to tell me on that one. You, you were at Palace, so maybe you, uh, you can tell yeah. me. But yeah. I, I, I think I, I, it, the way he's got them playing football this season, I think that has to be... We have to doff our caps to that and say, you know, they're fantastic to watch. It is starting to look, it's starting to come together a little bit like we saw the football that uh, he got Barcelona playing. And you can only give him credit for that. I mean, we're all marvelling, you know, you watch the highlights, you, you, you watch um, the footage of Manchester City playing and you're marvelling at some of the, the speed, the movement of those forward players. I mean, it's great to watch De Bruyne play, it's great to watch David Silva, who... He's almost under the radar at the moment and yet still playing absolutely brilliantly. The job he's done with Raheem Sterling this year as well, I think, again, he needs credit for that. But it's all with the caveat that he should be doing this because, A, he's Pep Guardiola, he's managed at Barcelona, he's managed Bayern Munich, he's got this great understanding of the game, but he's also got this unbelievable amount of money to go and, and, and do everything that he wants to do. And I think if you gave that sort of money to one or two other managers, probably, there's probably another group of managers, 10 managers, even people we don't necessarily know about. I think they would start to get somewhere near where he is because if you've got the best players, then you're going to have the best team. Mm. Let's look at modern football. Manchester United, they made great play last week about uh, social media penetration, you know, 80% more Twitter followers and I think it's 659 million um, Facebook followers. Are we getting to the stage where football is almost secondary to the to the marketing bang? Well, it's an interesting one, this, because I think it's almost where football ends and sport ends and moves into showbiz. And without doubt, it's become much more of the industry and the showbiz and the entertainment industry than just the beautiful game, as it were. And I think some of the old school supporters will... will will struggle with that and I mean I really, do I have to say yeah I do I do and I don't mind I do think if it if it makes kind of it brings it to a wider audience then I don't think there's too much wrong with that it really struck me I was at, at sort of England Brazil and it was just the way that the Brazilian players were greeted when the teams were read out it was like Neymar's name was read out and it was just like 
blimey, I'm showing my age here, but sort of it's, it's Beatlemania, and it was like the, the, the sort of kind of the, the, the shouts and the kind of the squeals and the, and the cheers, you know, came from a young audience. It's almost the PlayStation so generation, isn't it? So they, yeah. they know these names from playing them and from controlling them on the PlayStation mm. as but much that, as they know them wrong? from watching them. Um, I just think it's a different no, generation. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I, you know, I think again, probably showing showing our, our age and our generations now. It's 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 not. I don't know. I, I think about we had, we had this conversation this week when you talk about Italy missing out on the World Cup, and I think of watching Paolo Rossi when I was a, a youngster, and you know some of the great Brazilian names, the Zicos, the Socrates, and I, I. So I don't think, particularly because we watched them on grainy images, didn't we? You know, and there was almost that. I, I don't know, you, you, you could never touch them, you could never reach them, and yet players these days, everyone controls them, all the kids control them on the PlayStation, so they actually probably feel like they're a bit closer to them than, than, than we, ever, we ever did back in the day. So, no, I agree with you, John, I, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I just think it's then up to the personal choice, isn't it? Are you, if you're not happy for it to go that way, then you are going to lose a little bit of love for it, but if you are evolving with it, then then you'll you'll just say, yeah, this is the way it's going, and, because we are entering, and what a great success it is. We're entering the era of, you know, we were brought up on almost like a tribal loyalty to an individual team. What's happening now with the younger kids is that they actually now, they'll be uh, a Manchester City fan because they're a De Bruyne fan. And the whole aspect of it has just completely changed, where they, their loyalty is to individuals rather than clubs. Will we lose something if we lose the sort of tribal intensity that, that earmarks English football? Yeah, absolutely. But I do think it will change. <laughs> rather than lose it, it will change. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing it depends on your generation. And I guess we will think it's a bad thing. Because, I, I mean, I, I'm always brought up that basically... It's strange, isn't it, how sort of the dynamics of rivalries sort of change. For example, it used to be sort of local rivalry, but then there's sort of the Premier League era. I don't know, Chelsea, for example, Chelsea and Fulham fans or something like that, and Chelsea and Tottenham fans, you know, grew up as sort of massive rivals hating each other. But then is there an era where you fall into when a certain generation of Chelsea fans will view Man United as, as the biggest threat because they've stopped them, obviously, you know, and they're winning the title and have become their biggest title rivals. Similarly, I think that, that kind of the older generation will think that's wrong. And then the generation that likes, you know, sort of Chelsea and Man United as that, that rivalry will not appreciate the younger generation still mm. um, who, who will follow players and regard players as, as the pop stars, if you like, rather than the kind of supporting the actual you know, football team themselves. But is that wrong? I'm not sure. It's not how I like it, certainly, but I just think it's the way things evolve, you it's know. It's always roast-tinted spectacles, isn't yeah, it? You know, I mean, I speak, I speak to my dad's generation, his friends, you know, they they think that football now is not a patch on what it was when, mm. you know, they were watching the likes of Jimmy Greaves and Bobby Charlton and George Best, and they've arguably got a point. But we, you know, we're going to look back in, in years to come and say, look, it's it's not as good, I mean, you know, for Cross, it's not as good as when the likes of Lee Dixon and Adams and Bolds and those mm. sort of players and Henri's, you know, the, the current crop on this one. But it's just, it's just part of the evolution of it all but I had an interesting chat with a, a mate of mine last night who's from Ireland and he was telling me that his dad is a huge Arsenal fan but his two boys are Manchester City fans and they cannot work out why that's so simple Manchester like, City are winning they're the they're coming winning. team they're the coming force and and you know why wouldn't you if you're five six years old seven years old just getting into football 
you know, particularly if you don't live in England, why wouldn't you, the, the, particularly the football Manchester City are playing at the moment as well, why wouldn't you be drawn to that and want to get behind it? Mm. Let's concentrate on you know, one of the ic icons in, to, in a marketing mm. sense, but also in a football sense, Zlatan. Mm. Made his comeback yesterday evening. Uh, brilliant quotes as usual about lions and everything else. How much impact do you expect him to have for the rest of the season? I think it will be limited, but I think actually it will still be remarkable in that basically I think he will be, I mean, judging by what he said afterwards, it was fascinating watching that. Yes, we love his quotes and they're really entertaining and, and so on. But he was actually talking about the kind of the will of the body carrying the knee around. Mm. So it's clear in his own words that basically he's voicing some doubt a little bit and some frustration that he's not fully fit yet. I just think he will play cameo roles and he will be a super sub on occasion and probably get big goals because that's what Zlatan does. He's a man for a big occasion. And that, I still think, could be absolutely invaluable. So you'll see him fleetingly, whereas Man United relied on him massively last season. He was their main man. You know, he played right throughout every single competition and, and drove them on, didn't he? He was absolutely fantastic on, on big, big nights and big occasions. But I think you'll see him used much more fleetingly and sparingly because of the fitness issue as he continues to, to recover back to full fitness. But I still think, conversely, he will have a big say as Man in Man United's season, whether it be in you know Champions League victories or, or, or whatever it might be, chasing down City. Because I, I still think he's the band for the big occasion, even if it's 10 minutes. He's the, man, he's the man who best reflects Jose Mourinho on the field as well. And I think when we hear Mourinho come out and say, so much of what he says that you 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 know we all jump on the back of supporters jump on the back of that's clearly there as a deflectionary tactic to take away from the rest of the team and I think Mourinho loves that about Zlatan that he'll stand before the cameras after a game and tell us that he's a lion rather than a normal human being and so that's what we focus on and it just allows all those young boys around him to get on with learning the football, learning and, and understanding, carrying the weight of playing for Manchester United. I mean, I know last season there, there were one or two of the younger lads found it almost intimidating to, to play with Ibrahimovic because he was so demanding of them and he, he would scold them if they did something wrong and it, it, was, it was, you know, actually affecting them a little bit. And I think that's why, as John says, I don't think he'll play as much this year, but I, I just think he'll almost be this totemic kind of character in the squad that, that they put there and say, you take all the, you know, you take all the criticisms or everything on your shoulders, carry the weight of the team and just let the rest of us get on with playing football. Mm. And, you know, United strengthened immeasurably by the return of Paul Pogba. Yeah, I thought he was, he was dramatic and I thought you, you realise suddenly, don't you, that basically how much they've missed him. And I think particularly in the last, say, four to six weeks, where United have lost a spark and have lost a bit of momentum, I think, in their sort of level of performance. I thought, yeah, just the spring in his step, that kind of boundless energy. I mean, the cross that he, he sets up, the way he gets onto things on, on the end to, to make the difference. He, he's got a power and athleticism um, that, that really sort of sparks United. And they, frankly, they've looked flat without him at times. He makes it look fun again, doesn't he? Yeah, he does, you know, and it yeah. almost resonates with the, the generation that we were just talking about, you know, the, this whole idea of dancing. I mean, I'm sure, sure the three of us looked at that and thought, <laughs> what, what on earth are you doing? But, you know, for the youngsters watching the game, but it's just putting a bit of spirit mm. back in Manchester United that, as, as Crossy said, has been missing. Mm. 
Mourinho has been on edge in the last few mm. weeks. Do you think he's got a point when he uh, essentially attacked Gareth Southgate for the Phil Jones situation? I, I It was funny because I saw it and thought it was interesting on sort of a couple of levels that basically Phil Jones clearly wanted to play. There was dialogue between the, the sort of all parties, basically Jones, Man United, and England. Jones, we shouldn't forget, missed the World Cup qualifiers in October, and Jose Mourinho then did play him in Man United's next game. So you know, Jose kind of knows what he's what he's doing. So that that kind of that sort of naive comment, uh, talking is sort of kind of about himself, saying that other managers are cleverer than me, sort of pulling players out. Really, I don't know about that. I, I must say, people, when you see sort of six injections, it was actually one procedure, I think, that, that basically people might well be shocked at, at that. But he, he's a player who clearly wanted to play. And Southgate has to stand up for what he believes in if he's going to get results going into the World Cup. What, what struck me, though, was that, that Jones was, from the off, Jones was never fit. And he, he went and stretched for a ball after a couple of minutes. Mm. And, and we thought, oh, he's going to come off. It was two minutes in and, and basically lasted another 20 and then came off. He wasn't right and he really shouldn't have played. But I guess that's really good for Southgate because he wants them to wants players to, to turn up and be desperate to play. But for Mourinho, I can understand where he's coming from on that. They were all right, weren't they? Right. They, they were yeah. all right with it, really. Yeah. Mourinho, from his perspective, yeah. absolutely outrageous when you see a player who's got an injury worry having injections just to be able to play in a friendly. But you can understand from Jones' perspective, thinking, well, hang on a minute, one or two, there's been one or two dropouts. At the, uh, the gaffer is clearly bringing these young lads through and I want to go to the World Cup, so I want to show him I want to play, so I'll just... You know, I'll just go along with whatever the medics say and that'll be fine. And Southgate is looking at it saying, well, yeah, I want to assess all of my options. So it, it's a tough situation, but I think Mourinho was well within his rights yeah. to be upset about it. But I, I see a tipping point coming. If you look at manager now, managers now are becoming much more vocal about their frustration with international football. You know, Guardiola, when, when he lost John Stones yesterday, was talking about the demands, unrealistic demands being placed on his players. Will we see international football developed, so that essentially friendlies are going to be a thing of the past. Yes, we will, particularly because we've got the League of Nations qualifiers coming up for... Have you got, you got no. any idea what that's about? <laughs> no, <laughs> and it's funny, actually, because I was put onto this a while ago and kind of... I, I sought out the rules and the explanation of it because we're not going to have qualifiers for however long it is and then tried to sort of read it from... The, you know the various sort of organisation websites and and so on. That that was readable. So I rang someone up and they sort of said, "Oh, it's, yeah, it's easy. It's simple like this." And I was thinking by the end of the conversation, "No, you've completely lost me." And then and then basically they then did a little bit of briefing again, sort of UEFA, um, a, a couple of months ago when when it was almost launched as a thing. You know, it's been bubbling under the surface for for a couple of years. But basically, I don't. I still don't think people have realised just how much it will change the dynamic and the changing face of football, uh, international football. It really is. It's like a round-robin tournament. You've got a couple of goes at it. It will reduce, I think, the number of uh, perhaps smaller nations that in teams, bigger teams like England will play in the qualifying system. So it's designed, I think, to get you know bigger games, bigger international fixtures as a regular thing. Whether it will work or not, it remains to be seen. But in fairness... 
I'll, I'll bang on about this a bit, that UEFA and FIFA have tried to kind of change things. The week of football was one thing, reinventing the Euros, obviously expanding the World Cup, and again, sort of FIFA have embraced that with the European qualifiers, trying to spread the qualifiers. And they're trying different things. And that suggests to me that even they accept that there's a bit of a problem with international football. England fans buck the trend because you're getting 80,000 one week, you're getting 85,000 the next. Don't tell me that international football is dying. It's not. But I do think it probably needs a shot in the arm across all, all the nations. It's so hypo hip just hypocritic nature of football clubs, though, that they'll go on a post-season tour. Don't do it. Don't moan about international football that still means a lot to the players as well, you know, when, when it's right, when they're enjoying themselves. They still want to pull on their national team shirt and, and probably even more so the foreign players than, than the England players of late. But don't then take them away. Even if clubs turn around to us and say at the end of the season, oh, it's not going to be that much hard work. You're making them travel through time zones. You're, you're making them do, you know, run around for 90 minutes when they'd be better off with their feet up. You know, go and have a break at the end of a long season. I just, I don't see how you can have one argument without the other. Yeah. Both of you were at the Emirates yesterday. Um, did the real Arsenal stand up, John? Yeah, I, th I think you definitely saw reaction and response. Um, I think they played really well. They sort of they, they pressed high. They, they they'd clearly had a message to put across, didn't they? I mean, I just think we spent the last week or so rightly praising Tottenham and the job of work that Pochettino has done because it's definitely closing the gap, absolutely. Um, and I, I guess it's kind of stuck in the claw somewhat because I just felt that they were out to deter, you know, prove a point, not necessarily against the media, but basically say, actually, we are still you know, kings of North London, and we want to have our say and, and put up a performance. I think basically I then sort of see people saying, oh, God, you know, why don't Arsenal do that? Can't remember the last time Arsenal put on a performance like that. Well, I can. It was Everton last month. You know, so they have got that in their locker. Yeah, but once but a month, that's the problem, it's isn't not, it? It's not, absolutely. That's and why I'm it's not, so frustrating. This, this is what Wenger's... But it's not one... Some people say it's once a season. It's not that bad, but... They, need, they are not going to win the league. And why aren't they going to win the league? Because they don't put on performances like that. Regularly. But they did. They did. In basis. the first decade that Arsene Wenger was at Arsenal Football Club, they did. They had that team. They were powerful. They were tactically brilliant to watch. You know, they were hard to break down at the back. And that's everything that they were against Tottenham yesterday. So they showed they can do it. They were well drilled. You know, the, the full-backs didn't allow... Trippier to get a look in. Ben Davies got a little bit more joy down the left, but never given quite enough space to put in a cross that would completely undo. And, and you know, Koscielny in, in the heart of defence alongside Mustafi, they were brilliant and they didn't make any mistakes. They were switched on for the, the full match and yet they can't do it week after week after week. And it's such a shame because we, we've seen Arsene Wenger sides do that over the years. And I think that's why there's a frustration from those of us who aren't you know, neutrals are watching it, you know, because this team could be so much better than it is. And it showed that yesterday. They were terrific. Mm. Will that team include Meza Ozil after Christmas? I think it will. And I think it will include him if he can produce, carry on producing good performances like that. It definitely went through a lull at the start of the season mm. when he was really poor. But he played brilliantly at Everton. He was fantastic against Tottenham, I, I thought. Mustafi was man of the match for me, but I just I just felt that, that Ozil was 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 terrific. I think if you'd asked Arsenal, say four or six weeks ago, without doubt, I mean Wenger even alluded to it uh, publicly, saying that basically they, they they might have considered a bid in January. 
But now, if he continues to play at his top level and he's playing at a level whereby he can get Arsenal into the top four and make the difference, then I don't think they will entertain, in, entertain that bid. But much more significantly, I think any player and a top player would not want to leave with six months left on his contract for the pure and simple reason is that basically as a free, he can completely have his pick of clubs Man United will definitely be in and there. And he'll make an absolute fortune. Absolutely. And the, what he can earn, personally, is far greater as a free agent than as a big signing, even, even though it will be with six months left. Directors of football will argue against that and say that the change, football is changing the face of that and that no long, is no longer relevant. But I disagree in speaking to agents. They, they know that as a, as a free it's much more valuable to them, it's much more valuable to the player and any transfer fee will be transferred into the player rather than the club. Wages and in a, a big signing on fee as well. I mean, yeah. so you get that big clump of money, don't you, at the start? Mm. But, um... where, where did yesterday leave, where does yesterday leave Tottenham? You know, we, the stat is Pochettino, was it one win in 17 yeah. against the top six? Um, they need to prove themselves, yeah. and they didn't, did they? Yeah, it, it does. It, it leaves it leaves question marks over them still. Um, Pochettino has done a, a terrific job at Tottenham. I think we're all uh, we all watch them play. We'll thoroughly enjoy watching them play, and it's nice to see the club getting back to the sort of heights that the the size of the club would would expect them to be at. Um, but. They're clearly, he wouldn't have anything actually when we spoke to him about this in the press conference afterwards. He wasn't having it. He was saying that, look, you know, we've beaten Manchester City away, City have beaten Arsenal. You know, these, these are all, it's all interchangeable among the top six, but there's clearly a, a little bit of a, um, there's, there's a mental block there almost, isn't there, for Tottenham away from home against those, against those other top five sides. And um, they need to address that. But I, I think, I think that's because of the the youth in the side. I, I think you know a lot of people have talked about for the last even couple of years that in amongst all these young players, and no matter how talented the likes of Deli Ali and Harry Kane are, occasionally they are going to be lacking in experience, and they haven't got that that person who may be like a, an Ibrahimovic, uh, Ibrahimovic who's been there and done it. You know, Spurs could almost do with that one big big signing to come in and say, you know, when when there is a performance. Uh, as, as they put in against Arsenal, I'll, I'll take this. I'll, I'll be the man to galvanise this team and, and lead them on. And I think Pochettino needs to address that. Mm. Were Kane and Ali fit? Do you think? I, I personally don't think that Kane was anywhere near. I mean, it was interesting that he was uh, wearing a strap in, wasn't it? And basically, just didn't look his usual sharp self. I mean, Arsenal did certainly manage him well and really blocked him out of the game. Ali is an interesting one. There's clearly a form issue with, with Deli Alley. He was, we shouldn't overlook the fact he was brilliant against Real Madrid. Absolutely fantastic. But when Deli Alley is not scoring on a regular basis, what else does he give to the team? And that, that would be the, the one thing I would say. But this season, his form has dropped. I mean, which is a real worry because without doubt, he's you know, one of the most exciting talents in the country and gets into every England team when playing well. In World Cup year, he goes beyond just a concern for Tottenham. He goes to, to beyond sort of a concern with, with England. I think sometimes if you're not absolutely 100% fit, even if you, you, you can't really spot it on the outside, the player's not pushing himself to, to the level that he needs to be at because he doesn't quite trust his body. Having been out with, it, with a hamstring issue, which was the problem, to me, 
Ali was really poor, if not the poorest player on the pitch, which is just not Deli Ali. So, going back to the original point, probably not fully fit. They both looked like people who'd gone back to work after a, a, a week of not feeling very well. They'd gone back probably two days earlier than they should have. You know, even just their whole demeanour, just they just looked a little bit off colour for me. And you know, again, as John said, Arsenal's defence and midfield did a great job on on keeping them quiet, but never never as effective as Tottenham need them to be. Mm. What about Liverpool? Since they were beaten 4-1 by Spurs at Wembley, three matches, three good wins, you know, basically they, they steamrolled Southampton. Mm. Uh, are they capable of getting back and having a long run? They're capable of getting back and, and producing the sort of performances we were seeing from them regularly at the start of the season. I don't think they're capable of a long run yet because I still think, we keep reiterating this, They've still got the issues with their defence. Uh, it doesn't matter how good their attacking players are. And, and Mo Salah, what a signing. If that boy could finish, he'd be, he'd be incredible. No, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry he missed a couple of absolute sitters at the start of the season. But he's really... I mean, he is now, he is now proving to be a terrific signing as well. Um, the goals, I know exactly the what goals. you mean. He, he did at the start oh, of the season. Yeah. He, was, he was still scoring a couple of goals, but he was missing three or four more as yeah. well. But now, to be fair to him, he now seems to uh, you know, be eradicating those, those missed chances a little bit. And, and, and that's quite... That's Confidence, isn't it? You know that's fitness as well. So, yeah. Look to answer your question, they they're capable of beating anyone on their day, Manchester City included. Um, but I still think uh, I still think until they get that defence sorted, and I don't think it's a January signing. I think it's next summer when the work will have to be done uh, on the back four. Uh, look look at Guardiola. Look at the way he has reinvented the back four at City and even though it took Stones a season to get to the level that we've seen him playing at this year it, it does take it does take time so you're not going to just you know get bring Virgil van Dijk in, in say January or another defender in January and all of a sudden it's it's fixed he needs to bring in at least a couple of players uh, over the summer work with them drill them and then next year with Liverpool with the attacking threat they've got I think they'll be more of a force than they are this season it's Liverpool v Chelsea on Saturday is that a pivotal game for both? Yeah, I, I, I do think it is. It's a really big test, I think. Um, I mean, I, I, it'll be interesting, I think, with, with Liverpool, when, when, as Tom rightly says, I think when they're at it, they, they really can steamroller anyone. But I still feel with Chelsea, Chelsea have had some sort of ups and downs this season. And yet they're still plays quite nicely, thank you very much, in, in, in the Premier League table. And I still think that they can get back to where they were last season when, they, when everyone's fit and playing well. But it, they just have this thing, don't they, with the, with the squad depth. And again, that'll be tested, I think, with, with a long midweek trip. Um, and basically then you have to immediately jump back into, into a Saturday fixture, which again is a, is a big ask. So I think it'll be, a, it, it'll be a real test for them. But they are, I think, two of the bigger contenders for the top four this season but it's we've, we've Chelsea have flirted at various points this season haven't they but they're having that sort of kind of second season disaster but actually it's the reality is really quite different and I do think that Conte if he can manage his way through this crisis and things change and, and work out then I think he can prove what a really good manager he is over the longer term. David Luiz made me laugh I don't know if you saw the footage of him warming up I've never seen a player warm up with his hands in his pockets, which is what he did. Um, is there? It was is, cold yesterday. Oh to be yeah, fair to right. Me. Okay. Is that is that storing up trouble 
for Chelsea. You know, he's already been linked with Man United, hasn't he, David Luiz? Yeah, I'd, I'd be extremely surprised if they haven't sold Nemanja Matic and, and seen the come back on that to Manchester United. I'd be extremely surprised if they let another uh, one of their big names join uh, Jose Mourinho. Um, th there's clearly there's clearly something simmering away uh, with with David Luiz and Conte, isn't there? Um, uh, but I think at the moment, you know, the way Christensen has come into the team, he's, he's given Conte plenty to think about and, and the options that if one of his players is questioning his decisions, you know, he can make the relevant changes. Um, and what I liked about them, I know they were playing a West Brom team who were really down in the dumps at the moment, but what I liked about them this, this weekend was the fact that they played in Conte's image a little bit more. You know, you saw Eden Hazard running around absolutely just getting stuck in and really angry. And you don't always see that, do you, from Hazard? You know, sometimes he's got this ability to drift in and out of games. But I, I liked that. And if, if Conte can get everyone at it like that, then, as, as John says, I, I, think, I think you write them off at their peril. Mm. An easy fall, Neil win at West Brom. Does Tony Pulis deserve to keep his job? I think this is a really, really tough one, I do, because I think Pulis is a really good, steady Premier League manager and, and you know, people saying, and they're right, that basically guarantees your Premier League survival and who's better to, to be there in a relegation scrap. Well, slightly ignores the fact that basically Tony Pulis has left himself in the relegation scrap. Because this season wasn't supposed to be a fight for survival. It was supposed to be kicking on, signing a different calibre of player with you know, creative signings, uh, bigger contracts um, and an opportunity to push up onto sort of the table and beyond. I think sometimes people misrepresent sort of West Brom. I don't think they are the perennial re relegation strugglers that, that we have them down for. And, and frankly, I think that's what disappoints West Brom fans and also the style of play, which I think if, if West Brom fans wanted to show some patience towards the manager, I think they'll do that if they're playing nice, attractive football, which is fun to watch and sometimes gives them a re result away from home because they go for it. But under Tony Pulis, it's not been like that this season. And West Brom fans, I think, are quite loyal and sort of forgiving t towards managers. They want to give them time, but they've turned. They really have turned. It's not just a vocal minority. It really is becoming... The majority and they, and they want to see change they're fed up yeah i found it really interesting yesterday i was at the, the palace everton game the the warmth of the reception for david unsworth from the fans themselves you know it's this whole true blue you know guy with a club at heart where are everton at the moment you think do you think will, will they keep unsworth for the rest of the season or do you think somehow that marco silva will wheedle his way out of watford it's a good question. I think Everton will come back for Marco Silva this week. I know Watford are expecting them to come back um, with a bigger bid. £10 million is the compensation that they've offered so far. Um, I think it's expected to be around £12 or £13 million next time they come back. Still relative peanuts, isn't it? It is when you consider you know, £50 million for Gilfie Sigurdsson and, and you know what the average player costs these days. And when you look at the uh, what, what Marco Silva has injected into the Watford side uh, this season, you know, Everton could could really do for some of that. I think that the problem they've got is Watford are saying at the moment, look, at any cost, he's not leaving us. Mm. Um, I think nobody at Watford expects Marco Silva to agitate for a move now. They can expect that and they can think that. But if Marco Silva, I don't think Everton have come in for Marco Silva without a little bit of a nod and a wink to say, 
I'm certainly open to this, boys. If you if you mm. come and if you come and, uh, and and ask the question, so you know we've seen it a million times before. Whether it's been with players, whether it's been with managers, clubs say no, not available, not at any price. And then all of a sudden there is a price that the manager is available. But even if Marco Silva does go into Everton, he's going into a club that haven't got the striker that. Is, is, is causing the difference. That's, that's the problem. Everyone can see it. Ronald Koeman knew that that was the problem. They just couldn't get the right striker through the door in the summer who would, you know, maybe have scored the six or seven goals that would have lifted them up the table. I mean, he's a, he's a very bright young manager, Silver, a very impressive fellow when you speak to him as well. Uh, clearly knows what he's doing, but... Um, he reminds me of Mourinho. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's certainly got, got some of that in the locker, hasn't he? And I think the older he gets, the more we'll see the sort of stewing side of his nature come out. So I think he, I think he realises at the moment that he's still a new entity to the Premier League. So we, we probably see the charm that Mourinho gave us all those years ago uh, that's, that's faded slightly over the years. I mean, it's, it's still there when, when Mourinho wants to give it. But I think that's something that comes with age. You know, you sort of earn the right to be moody, don't you, and scowling when you've been in the Premier League for as many years as Mourinho has. Yeah. Some questions from the, the listeners and viewers. It's a managerial question from Robert Whelan. Is Pochettino just a poor man's Rafa Benitez? He points out that by this age, Rafa had won two leagues and both the UEFA Cup and Champions League. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, it is an interesting point. I'm a big Pochettino fan and I think he's closed the gap. I think it has, without wanting to in any way denigrate what, what Rafa Benitez achieved, I do think it's easier, it was easier then, to win the trophies than it is now. Because I do feel that... I mean, listen, Liverpool under Benitez, Istanbul, 2005, they, they had an, a fair amount of luck, shall we say, on the way, in the terms of qualification and the way they turned it around in the final. But it was a miracle... And basically, Rafa Benitez is, is defined, I think, by, by that victory and, and, and the success then that he's brought along. But it was an astonishing achievement, which gave, basically, Benitez superhuman powers. And it's one, still one of the, the, the greatest games of all time. And that gives Benitez this incredible gravitas and standing. So, therefore, do I think, in comparison, Pochettino's up there with Benitez? No, he can't be. You know, Benitez has pulled off one of the greatest results in, in European football history. And even though, as I say, I think it's probably a little bit harder right now than, 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 than it was back then, I still think that Pochettino will be judged on what he's won. He's yet to win a major silver piece of silverware in his career. I'll never forgive Benitez for that, by the way. I was 3-0 down and I, I decided at half-time I was going out. I went to a party. <laughs> I, I didn't see the second half. I thought this game over. <laughs> Ruined it. Uh, Nick from Manchester's on, another managerial question. Why does Chris Hewton get overlooked for the bigger management jobs? It's a good question. Um, I, think, I think Chris Hewton does suffer from uh, the fact that he's English, uh, well, Irish, um, but, you know, a homegrown manager, if you like. Um, I think if... He, I, was, I was talking to uh, a couple of people who know Chris Hewton very well, former players, and um, they, they made very good points about his style of management. He never goes into a club and leaves it worse than the way he found it. He always improves the clubs. Oh, he's done a, a very good job. He's unlucky, I thought, at Newcastle. Um, but he's, he's done... I think Norwich fans may... You know, they may say things didn't work out for him there as, as they should have. But I think the job he's doing at Brighton is just an, a, another reflection uh, of how good he is. And, and, and 
you know, look, Sean Dyche is the other one that we always talk about as well. Why Everton aren't knocking at his door as hard as they've been knocking at Marco Silva's door? I just don't know because, but you know, uh, Dyche in particular has got far more experience and shown that he can do more in the Premier League at this stage than Silva has done. So I, I think I think there really is something that, that homegrown managers get overlooked. And I, I think Chris Hewton is a, a good example. Yeah, of well, Burnley, 22 points already, which tells its own yeah. story. Um, Paul Fry, there's another Tottenham question for you. Um, with Harry Winks coming through at Spurs, where should Eric Dyer, England captain, no less, now fit in? It's an interesting one, that, because I think earlier in the season you would have said that Wanyama was ahead of Dyer. Um, in that holding midfield role. And I do think you probably need that. And Paul makes a good point. I think he's probably alluding to the fact, you know, that, that Winks, moving forward, has to play. And then you have to have someone to counterbalance that in terms of being the anchor man. And then the, does Dyer sort of fit into that? Dyer was in the middle of the heart of the back three against Arsenal. And I still think that he's not, for me, a centre-half. I much prefer him in midfield. A few of us wrote about this last week that basic Southgate is certainly looking at him to, to be in the middle of his back three for the World Cup because he obviously probably feels that he's good on the ball, brings it out and, and can hold and maybe step into midfield if necessary as well. So he's a versatile player. But I, I still think of Dyer as much the better midfielder. And then to my mind, Spurs are at their best when they've got a good anchor man and then winks the emerging talent because I tell you what, he came on against Arsenal. He, he, he changed the game. He got them flowing. He's excellent on the ball, superb passer. And I think you've either got to choose between Dyer and Wanyama. So I do still feel that Dyer's best role is in midfield. Right. Just a final uh, point, really. Going back to the Champions League, do you think an English club will win it this year? If so, who? Man Who's... City. Man City, the best chance. But I. I don't think they will. I think they'll reach the, the, the later stages. I think the demands of the Premier League will possibly rule them out of it. So I think they're our best chance. Tom? I agree with John in terms of Manchester City are our best chance, but I think they have got a chance. They've got as much chance of anyone. Um, you know, look, when you get to the later stages, it's 180 minutes. Uh, and once you get to the final, anything can happen. So if they get there, yeah. Banging with a chance. Mm. A lot depends on the distraction of the Premier League. Strangely, I've got a hunch about Manchester United. They're like their manager, durable and bloody-minded. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.